Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Very warm welcome to you. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director of the Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event with Jesse Norman, Financial Secretary to the Treasury. Hello, Bronwyn. Hello. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, sorry for the we, 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 a lot. A lot of what we're going to be talking about is infrastructure, and I apologise to everyone for the infrastructure glitches we have had already. I think you've perfectly illustrated the importance of the work we're doing, Bronwyn. Thank you. Thank you. Not at all. Not not quite in the way I intended to. First, just a few brief uh, housekeeping things. Uh, if you want to send in your questions, everyone, and please do start sending them now. Please do put your name and where you're uh, writing from. Uh, it always helps and is always interesting. And um, do tweet along with us uh, with IFG infrastructure. And we will have a recording of this audio and video on our website within 24 hours. Well, I don't think Jesse Norman needs an awful lot of introduction, uh, certainly not to people who have signed in for this. But as you will know, he is MP for Hereford and South Herefordshire, Financial Secretary to the Treasury since 2019, and indeed has managed to find time in recent years to write books on Adam Smith and Edmund Burke. Jesse Norman, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Bronwyn, and what an absolute pleasure it is to see you and to talk about these very important issues. Great. Well, let's start off with the National Infrastructure Strategy. So something the government published back in November, along with a spending review, and the IFG has for several years been calling on the government to uh, publish something like this. I wonder if you could tell us how this is going to help, in particular with the recovery that we are now, uh, that everyone is focused on. Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is that the strategy is online and I'm sure that many of the people who are dialing in today will have read it or will have an interest and they can very easily consult it. But very broadly speaking, uh, we recognised in the Treasury and in government that there was uh, just the kind of issue that you described. That is to say, it was important to set a longer term context within which uh, infrastructure investment was going to be made. We've uh, made it clear from the Prime Minister on down that infrastructure is a very important part of what the government's doing and there's a tremendous need. And there are plenty of objective measures that suggest that although Britain's doing, um, UK is doing incredibly well in some areas, there are other areas where it needs to improve. So what the infrastructure strategy does basically set a context for something like £600 billion worth of investment over the next few years, roughly half and half public and private, £300 billion public, £300 billion uh, private. And uh, in so doing, it tries to kind of thread a narrative that includes levelling up, but also, of course, centrally decarbonisation, and as, as well as what you might call uh, a response to the current problems of COVID and the need to make a as rapid a recovery from the pandemic as we possibly can. Okay, so thanks, thanks for laying all that out. It's not the first time governments have done this. Many governments set out their plans and they put big numbers on it. If we take just one of those points about levelling up, it's something we heard a lot from the government um, at the time of the election, and uh, the phrase has uh, indeed uh, made itself known uh, many times since then, but we haven't actually yet got a lot of detail about where such investments would be. So what, what does the strategy tell us about that? Well, uh, of course, the thing about infrastructure is that it's inevitably a long-term thing, and therefore you, one should not expect instant results. And 
what is interesting is that very ever since the uh, election, and indeed before that, the government has placed a strong emphasis on levelling up. Now, uh, there is, of course, some ambiguity as to what that specifically amounts to. And, of course, that will also depend in many cases on the specific context that people are looking at. The National Infrastructure Commission at the moment is doing some really interesting work on towns and how levelling up might play out in different ways in different urban contexts. So that's the first point. The second point is uh, that the Treasury and the government are thinking about this in a very inclusive way. So you've got a levelling up fund, which has just been announced. But before that, you had the uh, Stronger Towns Fund, now called the Towns Fund. That's been a very, very interesting uh, exercise. I would really encourage the Institute to look at that because uh, that's 101 towns across the country, each of which has been given what you might call the Heseltine treatment. That is to say, you can qualify for um, a substantial amount of local funding, provided you can show us a rich and interesting, distinctive local plan for how you're going to develop it. And the reaction's been absolutely fantastic, certainly in Hereford, which is the one I know best, I've sat on the board. Uh, you know, it has pulled out a long-term bipartisan, private and voluntary-led consensus that I think would have been unimaginable 12 months ago. So that's that. And then, of course, the other thing you'll have seen recently is that we're trying to kind of uh, live our aspirations, and you'll have seen that the Chancellor's announced that the Treasury is... Uh, combining with other economic departments to set up a new campus in Darlington. And we've announced that UK Investment Bank is going to be infrastructure bank, infrastructure bank, I should say, is going to be in Leeds and the rest of it. So it is something we take very seriously. So how can you make sure, um, in the jargon, that, 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 uh, that the public gets some value for money? There was some rewriting of, of the famous uh, Green Book, the Treasury Green Book, within all this. And it... Um, Seem to some people to, I mean, just just to increase the government's license to really put the um, put the investment where it wanted, which could, of course, be for economic reasons and could, of course, be for, um, you know, because it has decided it wants to favour some part of the country. Well, uh, uh, you're, you're covering a whole variety of bases there, Robert. Let's just pick right. up one of those. There, uh, there has always been a recognition that some parts of the country uh, need and can support and will benefit most from heavy investment. And that has happened uh, preeminently in the focus the government's giving historically in the Northern powerhouse. It's trying to power up investment in that area. Look at the Transforming Cities Fund. That's lots of money going into cities like Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool. And that's all to the good. Now, there's a lurking, there was a lurking kind of cronyistic element to what you were just saying. Um, let me remind you, just in case it's of interest, that the House of Commons published a note only a few weeks ago about, in this case, the Towns Fund, which has certainly been, you know, the Leveling Up Fund hasn't been allocated yet, so no one can make any comment. The methodology has been published. Uh, but in the Towns Fund, they noted that the allocations have been made that preci almost precisely and certainly closely uh, uh, tracked both the 541 towns from which the 101 were chosen uh, and also uh, what you might call the expected uh, political allocation by constituencies. Now, of course, since that happened, there's been a general election that's changed the picture, but I don't think there's any serious or proper suggestion that there's been impropriety in that area, and ministers have had nothing to do with it. So, uh, on the wider issue, though, which is... I, the, I, I didn't... I, I must say, I, did, I, I wasn't suggesting impropriety, but the, the, the degree of freedom uh, given to ministers makes well, it harder to, 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 you know, to judge what the economic criteria are. Well, well um, I think the fair thing to say... Uh, is that, uh, let, let's take the Green Book as an example. So imagine the Green Book had not been reviewed and assessed in the context of levelling up. Uh, 
I've no doubt the Institute of Government will be one of the first organisations to say what an outrage it was that a narrow dogma about markets and value for money was being allowed to distort regional priorities for investment and very important areas were being ignored. There's a balance to be struck. And of course, what the what the Green Book does is to recognise that there may be cases, these may be transformational investments that can be made. There may be other factors that go uh, beyond what you might call a narrow focus on value for money. The Treasury is never going to give up on value for money. It's a vital component of how we uh, uh, think about uh, infrastructure investment across the country. But there is undoubtedly a contextual element to it. And that's one of the things that the NIC has been looking at as well. What about net zero? It's obviously a big part of what the government's uh, focusing on this year. We've got the summit at the end of the year. Is anything that contains a, a lot of road building going to be um, easily compatible with that? Well, the approach we've taken historically, as you know, is that we have and, you know, we have essentially a stricter and more effective independent regime than I suspect in almost any other country around the world. We have the Climate Change Committee. They are very well informed, very well briefed, completely independent, and they mark the government's homework. And they've done that for a number of years. And the reason we have that is because there is inevitably a natural embedded trade-off between uh, investments, particularly infrastructure you want to make, that may have short-term consequences but longer-term benefits or that that you may want to have as part of a greening uh, a process across the country, and uh, what we have, de- what historic governments have decided is that the best way to look at that is to look at the overall picture, uh, and then try to, uh, uh, as it were, bear down overall while allowing investments that may be the most economically or sensible, otherwise sensible investment made. Now, uh, 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 that is a very, very tough uh, uh, regime, and. Uh, what the net zero work does is to put into that a so far a substantial piece of analysis and in due course uh, a follow-up final report that looks at some of the issues involved, the competitiveness issues, the trade-off issues, how you how you can stimulate economic growth through green investment, you know, what the overall costs are going to be. All those kinds of elements will come into that picture. What do you think UK's aspirations for air travel should be then at this at this point? We still have, I mean, Heathrow is uh, is closer to being um, expanded, but not quite there yet. Well, look, I think when you get to specific industries, we ought to be deferring to my colleagues in the DFT in this particular area. And I'm not sure it's really appropriate for me to have specific aspirations. What I would say is that there's a lot of work. You'll have seen the Prime Minister's 10-point plan. There's work on jet zero. When I was at the DFT, we did a lot of work on biofuels and uh, uh, specific support that allow uh, uh, aeroplanes to jets to burn uh, biocompatible fuels, and uh, there will be a whole variety of different ways. My, you will be amused to learn that. Well, actually, the, I think I'm right in saying that the UK's first all-electric aircraft is a version of a plane designed by my uncle Desmond Norman, the Britain Norman Islander, featured in the James Bond film Spectre. It's the skiing aircraft, in case anyone remembers. Anyway, um, so, so there's a lot of work going on in this area, and uh, I think that will continue to accelerate. It's obviously a very, very big international priority, and there's a lot of business investment going into it as well. Let me ask you, we've got a couple of questions already coming in, um, uh, and I, I'll weave some of these into what we're talking about, but there's two in particular on, on, on something I was going to ask you about. Anyway, which is the UK um, Infrastructure Bank. We've got one from Mike O'Shea saying, when is it going to be open and working uh, with customers? Um, And um, 
one from Simon Webb of the Nichols Group saying, what, what is the National Infrastructure Bank going to do that commercial finance cannot? Ha-ha. Okay. And vice versa. <laughs> Very good. Thanks. So let me just pick those off in order. So the first question is, uh, we will expect to have it up and functioning by the summer uh, and further announcements will be made uh, in due course. But we are essentially bringing into being, you can imagine, um, uh, I've been very, very intimately involved in this process. We're bringing what I hope will be a major, major institution to birth in six months. And I don't think that's ever been done before on this scale. And the civil servants that we've got doing it and the advisors that we've had working on it and the degree of uh, collaboration and outreach and engagement we've had from the sector has been fantastic. So that's the first thing. On the issue of what the bank's going to do, one of the things we've done is to spend a lot of time looking at how infrastructure investment has been financed through uh, multilateral or national infrastructure banks uh, across the across the world and there are different models what i don't think there's any doubt about is that there is a niche um, potentially very successful and important place i should say rather than a niche for infrastructure banking investment when it's done effectively and well and an example of this in britain would be the green investment bank which was uh, undoubtedly um, able to exploit uh, uh, an area which crowded in investment didn't uh, undermine the highly effective uh, banking sector we have at the moment or some of the infrastructure investment we see, but acted as a place where new projects we brought forward and uh, and investment that wasn't otherwise there could be crowded in. We see the same thing with the UK guarantee scheme. Often we offer a, uh, a guarantee, we have a conversation where it becomes clear the UK government is interested in supporting something with the guarantee, the private sector comes in. So there clearly are these investments. And we think the other thing that the bank can do, which is really important, is, and this is the thing I feel very strongly, is act as a kind of convener location for expertise. There's a ton of knowledge across government, both about finance and about the different uh, aspects of levelling up and uh, decarbonisation, the green economy, which goes what's beyond decarbonisation, as you might imagine. Um, the bank can act as a really important central repository of expertise and also as a, a place where you can call up for the first time and say, look, who do I need to speak to? Well, let me tell you, you know, this fantastic person, Maddox, we've got on, on whatever it is, and they can guide you through the process. All right. So, so when does it start? Well, I'm, I'm not, unfortunately, going to give you the full details. I'll leave that prerogative to some of my colleagues. But uh, I think I said um, uh, by the summer and uh, the summer is a treasury term of some, uh, of some flexibility, as you'll be aware, but uh, uh, in the not too distant future. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to wait for the uh, then the, the the next statement. Just trying to glean what we can from these documents uh, <laughs> as as, as they come out. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been one at this point from um, Alison Ring of the ICAW, who says the infrastructure strategy was populated with lots of different promised uh, funding amounts. How's the Treasury going to follow through all of these figures um, to the actual spending, and more importantly, to the outcomes? Uh, across lots of different uh, departments. So fabulous questions, and th thank you very much indeed to everyone who's writing in and offering them. And so, there's a lot, of, a lot of questions coming well, in. No, no, that's just marks, and I, I really yep. appreciate the expert audience you've been able to bring to the to the to the table, uh, Brahman. So uh, I would say this: the uh, uh, on the question of money, uh, look, we have a very much expanded uh, capex. Um, envelope now for spending. Uh, it is uh, demonstrated in the last spending round where we had 100 billion pounds of capital expenditure in the whole round of which 27 billion went to uh, infrastructure. So I don't think there can be very much doubt that the government's putting its uh, 
uh, money where its mouth is in this area. When you come to the question of how is it going to be effectively spent, that's a really important question. I spent a lot of time working with one of my responsibilities is uh, uh, is the uh, Infrastructure and Projects uh, Authority, and they are doing a phenomenal job under Nick Smallwood of of raising standards in how we deliver projects from the public sector standpoint. From the obviously the private sector is a different matter. Um, you have regulators and you have private organisations doing that. On the public sector side, what we really need is top quality commissioning and client work across government. And one of the things you may amuse you to know is one of my small achievements. I mean, Mary, Queen Mary um, said that she died, that the word Calais would be on her heart because she'd lost Calais. Um, the one thing I, I'm very proud to have done is to have started the first ministerial training programme uh, in government. And we've now, I, I thought when it came out that I was going to be shot, hung, drawn, quartered and hung from the nearest lamppost by my colleagues because of course, all ministers are aware that they are there are areas of what you might call um, which they could brush up on, indeed become acquainted. But, with. This is something that actually pushes quite a lot. And so, so what in particular were you We are Newton and Leibniz, um, uh, Roman, because I, I I wasn't aware that the IFG was pushing it. I should have been, but yes. I know my issue. Uh, has been to improve ministers as clients to say, look, the client function is often, you know, in 50% of cases, what makes them a good project and a bad project. We've all seen that endless experience of this. How do we make ministers and senior responsible owners within the civil service into better clients? And what we're doing with the IPA is basically making sure that people have the right experience when they take on that role, that they only do a small number at the same time, that they are properly held accountable, that it's intrinsic part of their future success and advancement across the civil service, that people have operational experience when they get into that role, all that kind of stuff. What I've done on the ministerial side is basically to work with the IPA and the Said Business School. We've now had three ministerial cohorts. A ton of my colleagues have gone through it. They, they do uh, homework, they do um, uh, classwork, and they do uh, expert case studies with leading practitioners. And they've all come back, almost without exception, from the cabinet on now to say this has been a fantastic experience. We need to do more of it. So I, I hope we will. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to hear it. Um, let me go into one one uh, um, one other question, which is the, the, the private finance initiative and what Brilliant. we should make of um, of the UK's. Um, um, I'm not going to call it an experiment, but the UK's experience with this. Um, there's been a commitment, uh, and indeed Sid Ryan, I can see in the questions from the Centre for Health and the Public Interest, is pointing out that he's very glad to see the commitment not to pursue further P P PFI procurement. What should we make of all this now? Well, of course, Bronwyn, I have to uh, confess a certain history in this area. You may recall that I actually set up and then led a parliamentary cross-party parliamentary campaign against the PFI when I was a backbencher. When I was on the Treasury Committee, we commissioned a top quality piece of independent work looking at it. And I'm, I even got one. Well, there was one point where I actually went into the Treasury and helped to rewrite the rules so that they saved uh, taxpayers a couple of billion quid. So I have a lot of form in this area. And... I am very pleased that we've stepped back from PFI. That does not mean stepping back from private finance. And it's also important to say that PFI, uh, for uh, in, in some respects, has proven to be a model which, with amendments, has gone around the world um, with some uh, benefits. All right. So, so what worked and what, what didn't work? Sorry? What worked and what didn't work for the well, UK? Okay, so, so the, the main problems with PFI was a poor understanding of risk sharing, particularly in relation to construction risk, which meant in the early few years, 
a lot of people made a great deal of money were essentially rent seeking um, i'm afraid there is a part of political aspect to it in 1997 and it does need to be said the then paymaster general a man called jeffrey robinson uh put the, the pfi in place and fired literally on the second day after the government was elected alistair roscoby who had run the private finance panel at the time and alistair roscoby as anyone will know who knew hermes or knew him was a, a public servant of the highest quality and he went on the today program and said this was going to be a disaster and i'm afraid the funding and investment that then went into hospitals was a disaster and it was a disaster in a couple of ways first of all it was incredibly expensive the second of all was that it was um insufficiently uh, 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 programized. So what you had was a situation in which, very broadly speaking, every project had inexperienced clients who wanted to make it up as they go along. Uh, mm. It had a structurally high costs because uh, you couldn't, uh, you had, you know, 10 million pounds worth of bid costs to be amortized in the course of the bids. Uh, it had very poor risk transfer. And of course, the other thing was that it pushed the whole of our uh, public health into a model of uh, out, large outpatient institutions that I described at the time as a kind of Maginot line, just at the moment when when health was becoming personalised, technology enabled and localised. And so uh, I think the PFI in many ways was catastrophic. And I don't think, uh, you know, I think we would in many ways be in a better place in public health terms if uh, we had adopted different models and different ways of thinking about health at that time. We've now got billions of pounds worth of these PFI assets coming back into public management in, in, the, in the next few years. How much do you think government knows about the actual state of these assets and how confident are you that public sector bodies can manage them? The very important and good question. We're spending a lot of time working uh, through the IPA uh, in on this uh, issue and uh, uh, there is no doubt that uh, it is going to require careful and delicate handling to take control of these assets. As you will recall, the PFI is intended to be, these are essentially full repairing leases. So the hospital, if it is a hospital or the other asset, uh, is expected to be in exactly the same condition, uh, subject to uh, any further agreements as it was when it was originally built. Uh, and uh, we will have to see, and there will need to be a very important process of audit and accountability to ensure that that is the case. Okay, well, I think that, that's at least that's um, partly answered the question of Sid Ryan as well, who had uh, written in on that. And thanks very much. Let me ask you something it's else. About the, I'm grateful for his question. <laughs> about the National Infrastructure Commission, um, which is supposed to provide independent advice, um, but it's an executive agency of the, the Treasury. The government's reviewing the, the, the functions of the commission this year. I was wondering whether you thought it was time uh, to put it on a statutory footing as a non-departmental public body. Well, uh, I've got a great deal of respect for the NIC, and I think John Arm has been a great chair. I think the commissioners are, have been a tremendous asset to the way we think about this and very expert and good. Uh, there's absolutely a case for uh, looking at putting it on a statutory basis uh, the government uh, is in a close discussion with them on a whole variety of different issues and if you look at some of the ways in which their remit has been expanded or as uh, they have expanded it it's been extremely helpful and good so they've just done some work on um, uh, rail uh, i've been talking about the towns fund they've done they've done some important work on renewables recently it's just been a it's been a great experiment and i think a part of a, of a model that I, I hope will be will be emulated around the world Okay. Let me let me ask you another one from Daniel Coughlin, who's from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. 
And he says, look, the integrated rail plan has been delayed again and now won't be published until the summer at the earliest. The uncertainty and delay over the future of the, um, the eastern leg of HS2 and the new northern powerhouse rail line from Leeds to Manchester via Bradford uh, is costing the north billions. Can you commit to delivering high speed rail to the north in full as the prime minister pronounced last February as a major demonstration to um, what, what he would see as levelling up? Uh, right. Well, I, I thank uh, him for his question uh, 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 and for uh, it, there's no disguising its orientation. Listen, no, it is. That's where he's from, which is regular, but we, yeah. we take this issue extremely seriously. Integrated Rail Plan is a serious piece of work, pulling together a whole variety of different uh, aspects. It's by no means just about uh, uh, high-speed rail. It's about a whole bunch of other things as well. And, uh, you know, we will get it out there. Uh, uh, when we can and when it makes sense to do so. But uh, I don't think it's costing people billions of pounds at the moment. Um, what we are doing is uh, uh, trying to move with all due dispatch in a complex and multifactored situation. Okay, we've got a lot of questions now on what levelling up actually means. One from um, Alan Chape who puts it, uh, says, is there a clear, clear definition, excuse me, of, of, of what it means? And um, one from Chris Richards of the Institution of Civil Engineers saying there were lots of announcements in the budget linked to levelling up. What are the changes on the ground that you are watching that would indicate we are making tangible progress on, le on levelling up? So on the issue of, of what levelling up is, as I've already said, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea which receives its specific meaning in context. And that's what the work of the NIC does. And there will be parts of the country where it may mean uh, a very a transformational investment in some particular piece of uh, industrial kit. It may mean uh, a uh, in the case of a place like Hereford, uh, which is a which is a county with low income and underemployment, uh, very very much uh, one in need of uh, uh, continued economic investment. We have this fantastic science and tech university we're setting up in Hereford, Enmont, um, which I think will be the, the anchor of the longer term future. But in a place like that, it might involve a, a, a culture, heritage, skills and education offer alongside, uh, uh, as it were, uh, a purely economic bid. So it's going to mean different things in different places. That's the first thing. To uh, in the question of, of, of how it, how you measure it, I think the same thing is going to be true. So if you look at just take the Transforming Cities Fund that we've uh, uh, invested in. Uh, will uh, you know Manchester be able to look back and say this made a decisive difference to its economic growth as a city? I don't know that it will in any obviously measurable way. Could it be transformational in some of the investments they made in cycling and walking, for example, which is a subject very close to my heart, obviously important for our green revolution? Yes, I think it'll make a transformational difference. It could very much do that. I mean, we know the cabinet office is, is, is struggling to, to try and put metrics on levelling up. Um, all right, I'll, I will take your answer for now uh, as, as the answer. It's true, Robert. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, it may well be possible to put some aggregate metrics on it, but it's not going to capture. Uh, it's not going to capture what levelling up will actually mean to town, cities, rural areas that are covered by it, because uh, it, it's so much going to be part of. Uh, a locally driven process of realization of aspiration and expectation. So it's hard to see how formal metrics uh, will be in the map useful, but it's hard to see how they'll be able to pick that up. 
Yes, and also a very difficult year in which to put any metrics of any kind, something we're you're finding right, right, right across government. But I take your point that that's not really what it, what, what it is about or what the government intends it to be about. Mielski, we've got um, a cluster of things on transport, and I know you said uh, and you wanted to defer to your colleagues on uh, many aspects of transport. Nonetheless, people are asking a lot of questions sure, of about whether, um, for example, cutting air passenger duty on domestic uh, flights have been hints of this, uh, freezing fuel duty, uh, train fares rising and so on, whether all these send the right signals about um, what people should do to bring about net zero. Uh, I think that you would not expect me to make a running commentary on tax policy. That's the other half of my remit, by the way. We're talking about infrastructure, but but the other half of my job is uh, HMRC, COVID schemes, tax yeah. framework, uh, policy and that stuff. So, so I'm not going to comment on that stuff for obvious reasons. Uh, but I would say that uh, the key thing is to, uh, will be, I think, to look at the aggregate picture and that is what we have historically done through the CCC, and that is what I think we'll continue to do. And net zero takes a very inclusive view, and so that spirit is going to be preserved in the future ways in which this government and I think future governments will look at it. Okay, thanks. We've got one from Andy Murray, uh, who says, uh, the industrial strategy has recently been archived on the government website and the local industrial strategies appear to have been dropped too. To enable the National Infrastructure Bank to make investments aligned to levelling up, we're still on this theme, as are many questions, will the industrial strategy and the local strategies be replaced or has the Build Back Better paper effectively done that? Well, I don't... Uh, no, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Uh, the the I don't think there's been a supersession of industrial strategy in the government's mind. I think the government remains very focused on industrial strategy. Uh, and of course, if you think about what leveling up is and you think about what uh, decarbonisation and, as it were, greening the country and greening the economy amount to, an awful lot of that bears on uh, industrial strategy. So uh, I think that we will continue to pursue it via those themes. And certainly in the area that I look at, uh, infrastructure is going to be absolutely crucial to the industrial posture that we take up over the next few years and a lot more besides, because, of course, infrastructure isn't just about uh, the economy. It's also about life. OK, I'm going to take one from Graham Atkins of the IFG, who writes a lot about this and has written a lot um, of our infrastructure work with Nick Davies. And he says that none uh, that the, the major Blair, Brown, Coalition, Cameron and May governments didn't spend as much on capital spending as they planned to. Uh, the government planned to increase the capital spending very quickly in the March budget, um, uh, the, the Boris Johnson government, but only planned to increase resource spending a bit. How will government make sure the departments actually have got enough resource to spend uh, the capital budgets, uh, given this long record of governments promising large amounts and actually finding it very hard to spend? Uh, I think it's a really good question. If you look at the Towns Fund, it's been quite interesting, just as to take an example. It, it's It's become very clear that uh, the towns that are potentially, uh, as it were, in the long list and then in a position to benefit from money they've received need and have benefited from technical support all the way through. So there is definitely uh, an RDEL component that sits alongside CDEL, and that is something that the Chief Secretary understands very well. And 
uh, accommodates and includes when he thinks about spending. Now, we obviously have a spending review, a spending review coming towards the end of this year, and I've no doubt this will be an important part of that. Uh, there are There is obviously a great deal of capital uh, investment that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily always carry with it a, a high revenue load as well. So it, it's, a, it's a mixed picture. Mm. All right. Thank you. We've got an interesting one from Aaron Callan, who says, uh, where in all these infrastructure plans do you, do you place the proposal for the tunnel connection between Scotland and Northern Ireland? And how is the government looking to strengthen the, the union uh, for those from the smaller nations of the UK? He doesn't say where he's writing from, but that's... No, of course. I mean, great, great question. North of here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it, you will be aware that, again, this is an issue going to take extremely serious issue of union. If you look at the work that's been done at the moment, we've got the Union Connectivity Review, Peter Hendy is doing. There's some separate work being done on specific projects sitting behind that. I, I don't think it would be right for me to preempt that. What I would do is to say that, you know, as you will, be, you will have seen, we've Charles has made an announcement about freeports, and there's also a commitment there should be a freeport in each of the devolved administrations. And that, and the UKIB, the UK Infrastructure Bank, will be a nationwide uh, institution. So we would expect there to be a strong union component to all of that work. And how seriously should we take this tunnel? Uh, I think you have to read that in the. Let's see what the connectivity review says. I'm I'm not going to preempt that. Uh, there were, you know, for many years they didn't say they were going to build a channel tunnel, and uh, that's turned out to be a. Uh, an inestimable boon for many people. So let's just see how it ta- how it pans out. Uh, and uh, how seriously should we take free ports? They keep coming up. They're very modish at the moment. But in terms of actual economic benefit to those those areas, is this really something the government is putting a lot of weight on? Well, the government's placing a great deal of weight on it. It's a very important uh, part of uh, the Chancellor's uh, strategy. I think that's uh, important to note. The uh, reliefs and support that we've uh, announced for the free ports underlines how serious they are. The quality of the bids underlines how serious they are. Uh, I would. It's very easy to be sceptical about these things. I would just draw, and again, I, I, a homely example, I hope will make it would be of some use, but people say the same thing about enterprise zones. I can tell you the enterprise zone in Hereford or Rutherford has been transformative. You know, people will say it's very easy to say, well, it just cannibalizes uh, energy from elsewhere. Absolutely not. Uh, it's gone way, way beyond that. And if we can replicate that kind of success, uh, then I think Freeports will turn out to be very successful. OK, we will have to see. But well, uh, uh, It does depend on quality of, of leadership and quality of evolving model. And one of the things that's interesting about Freeports is that there are different models being deployed. So it's not, as it were, a one-size-fits-all approach. And the bids have, a, have, have in many ways, a uh, different uh, character to them. So w- we are in the process of learning about what really works in these contexts as well. Mm. Okay, thank you for that. We, we've got one from Greg Rosen saying, if the government isn't using PFI, what approach do you see as optimal for building new schools, hospitals and other infrastructure for which the PFI approach has previously been harnessed? Uh, well, look, I, I think it would be, uh, I don't want to trespass too much on my colleague, uh, the Chief Secretary, and schools and hospitals are not a part of the economic infrastructure as formally defined, although, of course, they have a very strong economic component as well as the public health and education component. So I'm, I'm not sure I should go too far into that. But what I would say is that there is every reason to think that uh, in investments that are funded 
um, through uh, proper procurement processes, uh, effectively uh, using best practice and not allowing this uh, uh, overly, in my view, client-led approach, can produce very effective high-quality infrastructure uh, funded uh, through public sources. And, uh, you know, that is, a, that is a perfectly viable way of building effective and good infrastructure at low cost. All right. Thank you for that. All right. We've got several on the, the Oxford-Cambridge arc, including one from Ian Binns of the Thames Valley Forum saying, what's your view of the priorities for this? And is it really going to happen? Others are putting uh, more directly than that. <laughs> uh, I uh, I think it is going to happen. Uh, as you know, it comes in two different parts. There's a there's mm. a road component and then there's a rail component. Uh, and uh, it's it's this is a this falls under my colleague, uh, uh, the Exchequer Secretary's remit. So I, I'm not as up to date on it as I probably should be. I had some input into it when I was at DFT when I was transport minister. Uh, and um, it is a it is a it is a project that uh, is is uh, as it were where, where the really interesting question is: Can those two sides be pulled together into a transformative local economic infrastructure? And that I think, as well as the as it were, agglomeration effects of uniting the two sides of the university, uh, uh, the two poles of the university, uh, universities. So I think that that is the question. And there's still, yeah, I think that's still a, a question that we need to answer. But the potential is obviously huge. All right. I've got a really um, a quite precise one from Tim Fullwood saying, were PFI projects protected by sinking funds to make good dilapidations? If not, does that mean that liabilities have arisen where contractors have gone into liquidation, such as Caribbean? Um, uh, about, about, about these assets coming back into public hands and what state and financial state they are in. So, I mean, obviously PFI projects differ, but uh, there is an expectation that the projects are being kept uh, up to standards uh, in flight and the dilapidations are being made good and the overall picture which is the one i described that is to say that the asset once created should be preserved and that the generous funding settlements uh, that have been allowed in the in those contexts uh, uh support that 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 remains the the overall picture okay thanks and we've got lots of questions coming in, in response to what you've already said so let me um pick yeah, up sorry, one. So that's i've obviously been in, in live time um, one from Chris uh, Roy Toole saying on Freeports and levelling up uh, that he predicts WTO rules on differential taxation and subsidies will prove to be an obstacle to Freeport development. Can we have a comment from the Minister? Yes. Uh, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, we've proceeded all the way through on the best legal advice and uh, will continue to do so. Okay. Um, we've got one from John Hicks saying... What measures are being taken? Do you uh, I should just say, so my last comment was slightly ambiguous. Um, uh, 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 what I was saying was, we don't know whether or not someone might try to raise a challenge. We believe that the, as I say, that the Freeport work that's been done has been uh, uh, informed by the best legal advice and is, remains uh, completely legal and acceptable from a wider trade perspective. All right. Uh, thanks for that. And I want to I want to then just wheel back to the um, environmental ones, because we've got a whole cluster of questions, um, some of which I can ask individually. But 
Um, they are all really pushing at this question of whether the national infrastructure strategy is um, is a green one, and um, whether uh, how the government you know quantifies that, um, how um, how how it reconciles these two uh, very ambitious planks of its its vision of the future. This national infrastructure strategy and a lot of um, uh, emphasis on spending big amounts of money on road and rail and so on. And then on the other hand, the commitment to net zero um, in only a few decades from now. And I get people are really pushing at this question of, look, if you're going to have a lot more transport, um, it, it, it doesn't seem very green. Well, look, I think it's a perfectly reasonable set of uh, questions. Uh, I do think there's a, an embedded mistake, though, which is to uh, assume that an awful lot of the investment that's being made, for example, in road and rail is about new road and rail. An awful lot of, mm. for example, the road investment strategy is about maintaining and properly accounting for uh, the existing infrastructure. And part of the problem has been historically that what governments have tended to do for obvious and understandable reasons is to fund them on an as-you-go basis, uh, as new, as, as it were, pieces of infrastructure, rather than treating them as assets. And what uh, previous government decided some years ago was that it would be much better to think of these things as assets and to invest uh, progressively through the life of the asset to maintain it and support it, rather than, <clears throat> as it were, uh, a risk allowing it to degrade and then uh, investing in it on that basis. And so that, that, if you like, is the contrast between strategic roads, where our motorways will have a pothole filled immediately within half an hour of its appearance, uh, whereas and local roads, which are still not being funded on fully on a long term asset basis. And one of the things government uh, at some point is going to need to bear down on is the importance of funding local roads as an as a as a long-term asset for the same reason so uh, i think when you understand yeah, that but what, what difference does it make if you think of them as an asset sorry what difference does it make if you think of them as an asset oh i think it makes an enormous difference first of all it lowers the cost uh because you are uh, able to plan your investments in the knowledge that you have the funding uh, in order to be able to make the investment in future. So the second is that is that you're more attentive to the preservation of the current state of the asset because you're not expecting a windfall in the future. You know what the cash flows are. So it's actually quite a different mindset. And in due course, obviously, as we move to electric cars, much greener forms of transport, hopefully hydrogen uh, uh, widely deployed in the uh, uh, heavy goods fleet, uh, then you you will we we are going to need high quality roads for them to travel on, and they need to be made and supported in as green a way as we possibly can. I've got a question um, on this from Elizabeth Selk from Arcadia, saying the government is currently consulting on environmental principles. Um, she said, "What is the rationale for these principles not to be applicable to the Treasury?" The way she's uh, phrased this question. I'm not sure I really understand what yeah. the question is. I'm afraid. All right, we put it. Are, are they applicable to the Treasury? I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I really know what principles that she she's yeah. referring to. So it's slightly hard for me to comment on it. Certainly, the Treasury uh, is um, it takes very seriously its own obligation as an institution to. Uh, uh, to abide by the rules it sets more widely, and um, that's one of the reasons why it's taken this lead position on levelling up by announcing 
that it will be in the vanguard of the northern economic campus that we're setting up in Darlington. You've got another one saying infrastructure uh, strategy is long term. Um, how do you get cross-party support if you get it at all? Well, that's a very another very good question. Uh, uh, we take, as you might imagine, the issue of cross-party consensus on fundamental issues such as this um, seriously. And let, let's just, I mean, inf- the good news about infrastructure is that it is as a topic relatively politically uncontroversial overall. People understand the importance of investing in it. Uh, and so so it doesn't naturally lead to uh, that kind of deep argument. Where I think you will get a political disagreement is in relation to specific sets of investment, regional priorities. There's a, you know, uh, obviously there are concerns that individual MPs have that their area is being ignored or that collections of MPs have that their region is being ignored. Um, that's often in defiance of the facts, but, you, you know, that is something you work with. But I certainly wouldn't expect a future government of a different uh, political stripe to undo either the infrastructure strategy or the commission or the IPA or the regulatory frameworks that um, have been put in place and have evolved over time because I think, as I say, I think they're world class. Thanks. We've got one from Nick Burton saying, why has the Oxford-Cambridge ARC strategy um, only been discussed with local authorities who agreed to sign a non-disclosure agreement? Um, Those who refused to do so were excluded from the discussion, he says. I just can't comment on that. That's a, a DFT matter. I haven't been cited on that at all. I don't even know if it's true. And um, we've got one from Alistair Baldwin, who's been uh, is a transport uh, expert who's been writing for the IFG and produced um, a long report for us recently on, on uh, transport policy making. And um, he says, uh, we know analytical capability and capacity in local and regional government to deliver an infrastructure often isn't there. Could we have more civil servants seconded into local government to help out? That's a really interesting question. I think it would be a really important question to to take on and to to expand on. It slightly bears on the point I was making earlier about uh, the importance of supporting the client, both when the client is a is a minister and needs training, and when the client might be a town that needs to know how to commission and, um, uh, as it were, implement a town investment plan. But I think the idea of increasing comments really good. Uh, one of the one of the things I think we need to do across government. Uh, in the civil service is to really step up not just uh, the level of understanding of scientific manufacturing technological issues uh, but also uh, to uh, to support civil servants who decide that they want to have a stronger operational component in what they do i've i've never met a senior civil servant who didn't benefit from some time um, running on an operational basis something and if we can do more of that that would be fantastic. That's an absolutely an issue on which if the IFG hasn't written, I would expect it to. And I would love to read the results because it's a very, very important matter. And I think I've indicated already how seriously I take the importance of having a really effective client and commissioning function within government. And anything we can do in that area within local government would be a massive support as well. The general problem is you need good clients all the way through. And uh, uh, that, that applies at every aspect of our public administration. Okay, we've got one that now that takes us right back to the beginning and the question of recovery and growth. And that's from John Hicks. And he says, what measures are being taken to use infrastructure investment to help uh, 
the economic recovery quickly. Previous initiatives to get shovel-ready schemes um, up and running have not proved successful. What's going to be different this time? And he's really focusing on the speed there of this. Yes, well, I doubt if he's got the counterfactual to show us that any of that is true and that they haven't been successful. But let's just uh, let's just focus on one thing, which I think has made a big difference. It goes to the other side of my portfolio, which is HMRC. Now, I think we all agree HMRC did a phenomenal job on the COVID schemes. And you know, someone had said yeah. that you know, I was going to be responsible for an organisation that's supporting 14 million people and hundreds of thousands of businesses. Beginning of last year, you know, you could have knocked me over the feather, but. Mm. What HMRC has also been doing, and I've been very, very strong on this, is putting in place a 10-year tax administration and digitization strategy. And that's really important because, um, first of all, there's the tax thing. It enables people to pay tax more easily, and it allows it also allows us potentially to HMRC to make support payments if we need to in times of pandemic crisis. It's a fantastic resilience measure in due course. We've been hamstrung by some of the inherited systems and methods of data collection from doing that in some of the programs we have at the moment. But the other thing I think is really important is that as HMRC becomes more digital and the payment of tax becomes fully digitized, so it has the effect of pushing digitization and better uh, IT skills into the long tail of, of businesses that may not actually be very IT enabled. And I think that's got a huge potential productivity bonus for us. And when, the evidence is that when you introduce IT into a business, you get something like an 8% improvement locally. Although I recognize that's not true in the national aggregates. There's a famous line from Bob Solo where he said, you can see the effects of computerization everywhere except in the national uh, economic statistics. And so that, that, that may indeed be, be changing. It's, it's, uh, well, we, I hope it is. But I, I think you will be able to see it very specifically in the HMRC work that we're doing. It's a very important part. And we'll be making a big announcement on that uh, next week or series of announcements on on what on what well, on, on on the detailed administrative listen these are not high profile fiscal event type announcements i'm afraid um they're just very detailed indications of how seriously we take this topic at the uh, tax uh, consultation and administration work uh, no, it's a point we've made consistently throughout the coronavirus that that you know that part of the support uh, for coronavirus got up and running very quickly because hmrc had the uh, the measures in place um, as did DWP. Um, and um, I was struck by, on, on, on the weekend, uh, by a, a column by uh, Robert Colvin, in fact, um, arguing that when people talk about infrastructure, they often talk about uh, roads and rail and so on. And actually what they ought to be talking about is databases that um, um, some of the coronavirus support got working very quickly because the databases were already in place had been invested in other things like test and trace were actually almost trying to combine uh, compile databases from scratch from people's phone records do you think that we overestimate um that we put too much weight on the big uh, lumps of of, of, of uh, stuff you can point to like road and rail and don't give enough to um not just uh, broadband and things like that, but actually to databases. I mean, I should I should uh, declare a slight of interest because or interest because, um, as you'll know, my wife's been leading the vaccine task force. And uh, what has been very noticeable about that has been the way in which they've been able to deploy specific expertise in pursuit of a particular thing and then use that embedded understanding within science and within the national health system to set up a regime for the future 
uh, as regards vaccines and the registry and future medicines development that is going to have a very long-term value. Where we've had systems, they have really proven their value. Where we haven't, they haven't. And what's interesting at HMRC is we've seen, we've seen both. Where we've been able to get validated information from people's tax records, the schemes have been astonishingly effective and very quickly set up. But in some cases, we haven't had that data and we've really struggled and we've had to bend over backwards to try to find ways and not always successfully in which to do that. So I do think data is foundational to how we're going to be thinking about not just industrial strategy, but the whole of government over the next 50 years. It's completely obvious that that's the case. And that's why there's a lot of work that's going on across government at the moment about uh, uh, ID, verification, you know, appropriate balances to be struck between people's civil liberties and the need. And what's so interesting is that in, in the NHS, where they have a, an astonishing reservoir of information, you know, we are um, able to think about, and well, they are able to think about, an anonymized use of that information for mm. drug discovery and development. And that's, that's another potentially massive thing for us over the longer term. Mm. Got one from I'm going to squeeze in two more. Got one from Russell Lynch saying, "Will you be using Tax Day next week to launch any consultations on changes to the tax system to encourage infrastructure development?" Uh, it, it's it's we're not calling it Tax Day. That's I'm afraid a, a thing that uh, has become a media thing. It's a tax consultation and admin uh, moment. Uh, we'll be publishing a, a lot of different consultations of a very detailed and down to earth way, and some of them will bear on infrastructure. Uh, particularly within HMRC, but not in any way that I can discuss now. Okay, and we've got one from Susan Hayworth saying, increasing ac access to skills, education and, and provision of modern attractive skills colleges is, is, is vital. Where there are gaps and def deficits, can we expect infrastructure finance to prioritise this need? I think it's a really important question. One of the things that's important to think about infrastructure is it's not just about bits of kit. It's also about skills. I mean, you know, infrastructure of the mind. Now, that doesn't fit directly into the national infrastructure strategy because so much has to do with higher education and further education. But the government's obviously thinking very hard about that. What's also interesting is that HE and FE are themselves massive generators of potential economic activity. And again, I can't not take the opportunity of, um, uh, uh, of mentioning this university we're setting up in Hereford, because part of the point of that is to use completely different ways of teaching, 50-50 gender balance, all in groups, all on practical projects. You do 17 projects in a three-year integrated masters of engineering working 46 weeks a year now that kind of scheme that kind of approach makes you automatically more practically able if you look at the 18th century you know what was it that drove the industrial revolution it was not boffins although a lot of the thinking came out of universities that as it were inspired the way we think about it now it was people like james watt you know fiddling around with kit trying to work out how to condense stuff and then how to put energy to work so it's that is that balance between skills and infrastructure and tinkering and testing that is where our future lies and, and we've seen it actually in vaccines we've seen it in mm. in medicine and we've seen it um, uh, across the response to the pandemic as well let me ask you one final one which is from our very own nick davies uh, who as i said writes um, a lot of uh, our work on this and he says you wrote a biography of adam smith what would he make of the johnson government and its infrastructure plans <laughs> fantastic question so so smith uh, believed that infrastructure should be uh, privately financed wherever possible, uh, I think it's fair to say. But he absolutely understood that there was a, a role for the state to support people, particularly, of course, in 18th century Scotland, um, through education. 
and uh, there was, as it were, a duty in that area. And he was a very highly educated man himself, of course, but he also passionately believed in the importance of education and the danger of what he called mental mutilation. Um, that is people just doing repetitive skills. Now, the joy of the modern economy is that it is a very diverse one in which people can find their ways in different uh, in different directions throughout their lives. But the emphasis on skills is absolutely foundational. And that is something that we need to continue to bear in mind across government, even as we make these massive infrastructure investments. With that, we're going to have to draw it to a close. Um, Jesse Norman, thank you for this um, answering this fusillade of questions from all <laughs> kinds, uh, all kinds of directions. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I did complete justice to the green wing. There were really a lot of uh, a lot of other questions coming in on that, um, but you will have other chances in the weeks ahead. Anyway, we're very grateful for your time. My pleasure. Today. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you very you. much indeed. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Bye.